All right. Good evening again, in case you didn't hear me that first time. I don't, uh, I don't think I offended anyone last week, and so I thought I'd get a jump on this week, because I don't want to, I was a little worried. Take your Bible to Proverbs chapter 20. Hopefully no one in here needs this message tonight. I think we all need the Bible all the time, but I, hopefully you know what I'm talking about there. Uh, I would love to think it's the case, let's put it that way. Uh, experience and statistics and scripture and everything else tell me that that's not likely, at least not in a crowd this size. But hopefully, if nothing else, uh, this is something that someone you know needs and uh, be probably a little bit more of a Bible study, so to speak, tonight. But uh, we don't know. We'll, we'll let the Lord direct there. But uh, that's what the Lord's laid in my heart uh, this past couple weeks. And if you're in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And I entitled this message, Drinking Problems. Drinking Problems. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd meet with us over these next few moments. I pray that you'd speak to our hearts from the word of God, that you'd help us to be more informed as your people, that you'd bring uh, conviction where it's needed, that you'd strengthen your people, Lord, in their understanding of your word, and pray that our time, Lord, would be profitable, and that it would draw us closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you, and we ask your blessings upon our time in Jesus' name. Amen. I would just come out and say, I, I think the Bible is clear about intoxicating beverages. Um, many people would have us think otherwise. Uh, and frankly, I'm not that concerned tonight with what the world thinks about it, because I don't really expect them to be in line with the word of God. But what's troubled me for some time and more pointedly, really, in just recent times, is the division amongst God's people about what God thinks on these matters. Uh, I don't know what you think the greatest problem uh, in our nation or in the world is. And, of course, we could say sin. Uh, obviously, that's the case. But some people would probably have us believe, you know, it's, it's cigarettes, it's, it's AIDS, it's cancer, it's COVID. But I would submit to you that it's alcohol. Alcohol. Now, maybe it doesn't seem like it to you right off the bat, but... That'll put more people in poverty this year than any of those other things. More people will go to divorce court because of alcohol. More people will spend time in the hospital and end up in the cemetery because of alcohol than any of those other things. I'm not going to argue necessarily or contend with all the liberal philosophies about what the Bible may or may not say this evening. If you came to hear my opinion, you'll probably go away uh, saddened. <laughs> but I think there's some, there's confusion, and it bothers me amongst God's people. I found this little quote, and I think it in some ways summarizes what feels like so much of the, the understanding amongst God's people now. I'm not talking about the world. Somebody said this when asked what they think about drinking alcohol. 
They said, well, if you mean the demon drink that poisons the mind, pollutes the body, desecrates family life and inflames sinners, then I am against it. But if you mean that elixir of Christmas cheer, that shield against the winter chill, the taxable portion whereof funds the coffers to help little crippled children, then I am for it. That is my position and I will not compromise. Now, you take that as a joke, but sadly, that's what I hear oftentimes from Christians, some facsimile thereof about their position. In some sense, they seem like they're against it. And then in other senses, well, it's maybe okay a little bit, maybe okay in moderation. It's across the board. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. You know, I don't like people to mock me. Now, for the most part, it's probably water off a duck's back, if I'm honest. I mean, somebody's probably already hurt my one feeling this week, and so there's not much room for other people to hurt my feelings. But, you know, none of us like to be mocked, let's be honest. Now, if you mocked my wife or my children, that's going to get my ire up a little faster. So why would you bring someone home to your house to sit there and mock you and your family? Would you do that? Raging. Do we, need, do we need more raging? People complain about road rage and all the problems out there. Raging. I don't think we need more raging. We certainly don't need it in our homes. The Bible says that that's what wine is. It's a mocker. It laughs at you. It makes fun of you. Now, what people want this verse to say, we'll just get it out in the open at the beginning, is something like drunkenness is a mocker. See, amongst Christians, at least in general, people that believe the Bible, there's pretty much agreement that drunkenness is wrong, as there should be, because it absolutely is. But where the rub tends to come is, well, what about a little drinking? And that's what I hope to address here somewhat this evening. Drunkenness is a mocker, and those who overdo it may become raging. And if you don't know when to quit drinking alcohol, then you are not wise. I mean, that's what people want us to think that this verse is actually saying. That's from the book of Foolishness, chapter 20, verse 1, in the Worldly Christian edition of the Bible. It doesn't say that, though. It doesn't say just that drunkenness is a mocker, though it is, certainly. It says wine is a mocker. I don't know if you ever read those uh, little call to glory uh, devotionals we give out each month. There was one a, f- a couple days ago. Uh, there had a quote in it from, uh, from Charles Spurgeon. It said, the day is coming when pastors, instead of feeding the sheep, will spend their time entertaining the goats. Yeah, well, that day is probably already <laughs> coming past. I think we're probably well into those days. You're there in Proverbs, though. Jump over to Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, look down at verse 29. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? Do you have any woe in your life? You want more? 
Anybody signing up for more woe? Yeah, bring it on. I'm all about woe. Redness of eyes. It's odd that they don't put that in many of the commercials, do they? Here, enjoy this new Bud Dumber. All the woe and redness of eyes you can handle. Yeah, sign me up. Funny that commercial didn't make it out of marketing, I guess. Yeah, they don't show the husband coming home and taking out his frustration on his family. I guess that just doesn't make for great advertising. They don't show the mom, the house smashed to pieces, the car on the side of the highway. Verse 30, who is this person with the woe and the sorrow and the babbling? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Oh, see, there it is, right? It's only they that tarry long at the wine. Yeah, let's just take it literally then. What about they that go to seek it? I guess those that drink, the wine just comes and finds them, right? They don't have to go looking for it. So I just believe the Bible, they tarry long. Yeah, it says that. And then it says, they that go to seek it. It's like, which are we going to believe? I believe all of it. Believe all of it. I didn't write any of the stuff in this book. <laughs> Let's just clear the air here, right? Because I, I can already see some of the faces. I didn't, well, okay, technically in this one, I wrote a few things because there's some notes like right here in my margin. But other than that, all, all the black words in print, those are gods, except for maybe the book of maps and the index. This is just what God says. We're just reporting on what the Lord says here, right? And that's what it says. They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Let me read you a, a couple of commentaries on this very passage. Uh, this first one's by a commentator named John Gill. Some of you may know him. He's, he's very well known. Uh, he and I would not see exactly eye to eye on this, though I think he's a very godly, conservative commentator. Uh, he doesn't hold my exact same position. But here's his comment on this verse. He said, wine deceives men. He, he, he's writing in the 1700s now. It not only overcomes them before they are aware, but it promises them pleasure, which it does not give. On the contrary, excessive drinking, which, you know, he had to include that word. That's where we vary a little. Excessive drinking gives him pain and so mocks him, yea, it exposes him to reproach and disgrace and to the mockery and derision of others, as well as sets him to scoff at his companions and even to mock religion and all that is good and serious. Sounds pretty good. I mean, I would, I would agree with that. Here's a more modern commentator man by the name of Sorensen. He's writing in uh, 2012. He's, he's still alive. He's a uh, minister's up north. He says, commenting on this same verse, foolish men imbibe intoxicants, thinking to get drunk and forget their troubles. The irony is that alcohol does not drown trouble. It causes it to float. I love that line. The world advertises alcohol as a great way to loosen up, to get a buzz. The truth is alcohol is a deceiver. In place of the enjoyable buzz comes nothing but trouble and destruction. Alcoholic beverages are demons in a bottle. Few things in the history of humanity have proven more destructive to life, happiness, and the family than alcohol. Those who drink it are not wise. Very pointed. I like it. Verse 31. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. It seems like pretty strain language, straight, straight, excuse me, language. Does anybody not know what that means? God's saying when that stuff, that 
fruit of the vine that God gave and its sweetness for man to enjoy, that new wine that's in the cluster Isaiah talks about, he said, when that starts to move, you start to move away from it. He says not even to look upon it. Get away from it. Verse 32, at the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. That's what you get from wine. Your grocery list ever read bread, milk, butter, snakes? You pick those up at the store. I want something that, you know, bites like an adder. Why would you bring it into your house? Have it around your kids. Here we go, verse 33. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. That girl that maybe didn't look that great at 8 o'clock when you got to the bar, all of a sudden she's a spokesmodel at 11. That boy that you woke up in bed next to, that you wouldn't have been seen holding hands with yesterday? What caused that, I wonder? Alcohol. Alcohol. I'll whip any man in here. You wouldn't say that sober. Doesn't it say your heart will utter perverse things and you'll behold strange? I mean, this is, what, this is the Bible here. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm trying to report on what the book says. I beat up anyone. You wouldn't have said that sober. Yea, verse 34, and thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, thou shalt say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Cars in a ditch on the road. Heaven forbid some person or family is ruined or dead because of it. Lives ruined. Can't wait to get out of this hospital bed so I can get back to the bar. The bar. Somebody wrote a little poem about the bar that I liked. It says the name of each saloon is bar, which is the fittingest of its names by far. For it's a bar to manliness and wealth but a door to want and broken health, a bar to honor, right, and fame, but a door to grief and sin and shame, a bar to hope, a bar to prayer, but a door to drunkenness and despair, a bar to an honorable, useful life, a door to brawling, senseless strife, a bar to all that's true and brave, a door to every drunkard's grave, a bar to the joy that home imparts, but a door to tears and aching hearts. A bar to heaven, but a door to hell. Whoever named it, named it well. Take your Bible to Genesis 9. Genesis 9. As you may know, there's in Bible study what's called the law of first mention. Oftentimes, when a topic is mentioned the first time in the Bible, that's indicative or setting the stage for how it is to be understood throughout the scripture. And in Genesis chapter 9, we have the first encounter of mankind and alcohol. This is right after the flood. In verse 20, the Bible says, And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. Now, we don't know what 
Noah was prior to the flood, other than we know he was a preacher of righteousness and obviously a shipbuilder. Uh, and now he's been piloting a, well, God's been piloting an ark. He's probably tired of fishing by this point. He's been out on the sea for a few months. Uh, but the point is here, he, he became a husbandman. He plants a vineyard and he drank of the wine and was drunken. And he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Now, obviously, his younger son Ham here is, is to blame for much of this. But the fact is, a preacher of righteousness became drunk and he woke from his wine. Awoke from his wine. Go to Genesis 19. Genesis 19. It's talking about Lot and his family and after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 30 says, And Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar. He dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. And the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, there is not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. I think you can get the details of this story. This is the second time man and wine are talked about in the Bible. And they both end in very shameful fashion. First two times wine is mentioned in the Bible causes a man to be ashamed before his family. Lot chose to raise his family amongst ungodly people. And as soon as their home was in a fix, their reaction was to turn to alcohol to help with the problem. And this man ends up ashamed because of it. It's, this is just the Bible now. <laughs> I can't make you agree with it. I'm just reporting on what it says. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 11. Excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11. Some of you will recognize that as the chapter <clears throat> where David gets into trouble with Bathsheba. And we'll not take time to, to read the whole passage, but King David ends up in a, an affair with another man's wife, Bathsheba. And to try to cover his sin, he calls this soldier and home from the, the battle where the troops are and tries to get him to go down to his wife so that things will look normal. But it doesn't work. Because Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, won't do it. He says, my troops are in the field. It's not, not the right thing for me to do. Look at verse 13. So David has to go to more extreme measures. And when David, verse 13, had called him, he did eat and drink before him. And he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie <clears throat> on his bed with the servants of his Lord but went not down to his house. So David's even up the ante here. And there's a dozen different principles we could run from this story that we don't have time for tonight. But 
someone has pointed out that Uriah, drunk, was more righteous at this point than David, sober. And that's a sobering thought in and of itself. It came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab, verse 14, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. So David's plan is, I'm going to write a note to the general of the army, Joab. I'm going to send it with Uriah. He's going to carry his own death warrant, essentially, to take it there and tell Joab, hey, put Uriah in a hot battle and then you withdraw so that he dies. Now, I don't know exactly what Joab was thinking when he got this rather strange request. However, look at verse 17. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. See, in David's mind, and alcohol's involved, he's got a plan to, well, I'm just going to send Uriah to battle and then tell Joab when you're fighting, bring everybody back and let Uriah die. And Joab must be thinking, well, that's an insane strategy for one thing. Plus, it'd be rather obvious. All right, guys, everybody charge. Okay, everybody but Uriah back this way. And we'll all just watch him get attacked, I guess. So that's not what happens. Joab naturally has a much better general than that. He does put Uriah up in the heat of battle, but as we just read, other people end up dying because of it. Hmm. Alcohol causes us to make some pretty bad decisions. We don't think clearly under the influence of alcohol. So I don't know. Well, 1 Kings chapter 20. You don't have to turn there. You might include it in your notes. There's a Syrian general by the name of Ben-Hadad, and he's coming to fight the, the army of Israel. And he gathers 32 other nations in confederacy, 32 kings of 32 nations, all coming to battle with Israel. And Israel is captained at this point by Ahab. Now, Ahab, as we most know, is a, is a pretty wicked king, uh, but from what little the Bible tells us about it, he was actually a pretty decent military commander. But the point is, Israel is small, one small army. And a 32-army confederacy comes against him. And they're so proud, they're so convinced of their obvious victory that guess what they do the night before battle? They throw a party, they drink. And guess what happens the next day? They lose <laughs> the battle. 32 armies destroyed by one little Israel who's not even being led by a godly man because they had to get drunk the night before. Yeah. Search, search your Bible. Find me all the places in there where booze helps anybody. Where the situation turns better because the people were drinking. I'm giving you part of my list. You, you start on your list, and then we'll compare notes afterwards. Here's a few more. You can just write these down. We call them spirits. Yeah, the Bible connects spirits to alcohol, too, and it's not good. That's Isaiah 28. You can put that note down. Uh, what would cut into your ability to buy groceries and cause you to be sexually immoral? Hosea chapter 4, the answer is in there. You probably know what it is but you can write that down in case you want to look it up. You, young ladies, especially, 
Why are these boys always so interested in getting me to drink? Hmm. Habakkuk chapter 2 has the answer. In case you don't know what it is, you can look that up. The Bible connects alcohol to viewing other people's nakedness. That's not a mystery. Let me just give you a few statistics. And these don't come from a Baptist news service, by the way. You can go to the CDC, the WHO, the, uh, the NIH, National Institute of Health. You'll get similar stuff. Cirrhosis of the liver in America kills over 30,000 people a year. 80% of all fire deaths in America are alcohol-related. 65% of all drowning victims, alcohol-related. 22% of home accidents, alcohol-related. 77% of all fall injuries in the United States, that's just what's reported, alcohol-related. 36% of pedestrian accidents, 65% of murders, over 40% of adult assaults, over 35% of rape, 30% of sex crimes, 30% of all suicides, over 80% of all arrests by police departments in the United States are alcohol-related. Over 60% of all child abuse cases, alcohol-related. Oh, it's COVID. We got to stop people from smoking cigarettes. Did you ever get in the car and pray, Lord, please just don't let me come across somebody who's drinking or driving under the influence of tobacco? <laughs> now, I'm not for smoking. I'm not. But we've got our guns pointed in all kinds of different directions except at the enemy. Here's the entry just from the WHO, the World Health Organization's website on alcohol, right? This is not a Baptist. And they're not probably even, they don't even say you shouldn't drink. This is just their entry on alcohol. Quote, alcohol is a psychoactive substance with dependence-producing properties that has been widely used by cultures for centuries. The harmful use of alcohol causes a high burden of disease and significant social and economic consequences. Alcohol consumption is a causal factor in over 200 diseases, injuries, and other conditions. Drinking alcohol is associated with the risk of developing health problems, such as mental and behavioral disorders, alcohol dependence, non-communicable diseases, such as cirrhosis of the liver, cancer, and cardiovascular disease. That, that's the world's quote on alcohol. That's not even the Bible or a Baptist telling you it, about it. During the Vietnam War, we lost 57,000 troops over the course of nine years. And we built a memorial to them in Washington, D.C. I've been there multiple times, and I'm glad we did. And it's a beautiful memorial. It has every one of their names etched on it. People protested in the streets. They did sit-ins. This is a tragic loss of life. We've got to put a stop to it. In the same nine-year period, there were over two million alcohol-related deaths in the United States. How many sit-ins were there in front of breweries? Is that, is that what we get? Outrage by people because of such senseless loss of life? No. We get mothers against drunk driving. Students against drunk driving. Designated driver programs. Give your keys to the bartender. Anything but just cut out the devil's drink. We, we, can't, we can't entertain that option. Hmm. 
Yet we have an industry that spends hundreds of millions of dollars every year in our country promoting it. The statistics are that the average 18-year-old in the United States today has already seen over 100,000 alcohol promotions in his lifetime. Watching their heroes glamorize alcohol like it's no big deal. We're worried about all kinds of stuff. Pageant Magazine really, <clears throat> excuse me, recently had a panel with 20 of the nation's leading doctors and scientists, and they were asked, what is the number one cause of insanity in the United States? 20 out of 20, their first answer, alcohol. Alcohol. Proverbs 31, 4, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink. Well, that, that's just kings, Revelation 1, 6, and hath made us kings and priests unto our God. God's people have no business drinking wine and alcohol. Say, Brad, what about all the positive cases in the Bible? And we don't have time to look at very many, but let's look at two quickly. Go to John chapter 2. Probably had to see this one coming. John chapter 2. <clears throat> This, of course, is Jesus' first miracle performed at a wedding ceremony. <laughs> John chapter 2 is like one of those, I don't know, three things that people who don't even know which way to hold the Bible, to read it right, they know these facts, right? They know that you're not supposed to judge. I don't know where that is in the Bible, but I know the Bible says you're not supposed to judge. Jesus turned water into wine, and the ark had a hole for the giraffe's head to stick out. It's like everybody knows those three facts about the Bible, even if you don't know where the book of Genesis is. And so, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you've heard it, right? Jesus turned water into wine, so it must be okay to drink. And you can ask my family. I've had a standing order for a long time. Uh, I, by God's grace, I've never drank alcohol in my life. I don't have any plans to. It's not to say anything about myself. That's just God's grace on me. Even when I was a lost person, I saw people drinking and it didn't appeal to me. He kept me from that. Praise the Lord. That's all I'm saying. But I've told my family, I'll take my first drink when they start making wine out of water. You make it like Jesus made it, I'll drink it. Now, I don't think it was alcoholic, but that's beside the point. Well, Jesus made it, so I'm going to drink. You know, it's, it's funny that Jesus said like a thousand things. How many of those do you know? Well, I know he said, don't judge. I know he made water into wine. And then something about the ark and the draft. Honestly, you know, what would Jesus do? Well, how about what did Jesus say? How about we start with that? Because yes, he's our example, but he wrote a book. And you can know what he thinks by reading it. Jesus said a lot of things. How much of the other things he said do we pay close attention to? Now, in this story, yes, Jesus turns water into wine. And I want to point out something. I think this is important because I hear this mashed up a lot. And what they point to is that in the story, the governor of the feast comes after Jesus has made the water into wine and they've drunk. And he says, paraphrasing here, obviously, he says, wow, this is incredible. Normally at a feast, they give the best wine first and they save the, the weaker stuff for later. 
And the theory here is, obviously, if you don't want to waste your money on this party, you get a small amount of the good, strong stuff. You give that to your guests. So as they start to get buzzed, drunk, whatever state they're in, you can then give them the watered-down stuff, and it won't matter, right? Because if you're already kind of there on your way to getting drunk, you don't care, right? They just put some yellow liquid in front of you or whatever, and you're just drinking at that point. That's, that's where they're going with this. But we all agree, do we not, that God is against drunkenness. Even people that think it's, Christians that think it's okay to drink, believe it's wrong to get drunk. So are you trying to tell me that Jesus is attending a feast where they've been, giving, been given the quote-unquote best wine already? So they've been drinking alcohol. And now when the master of the feast would normally bring in the worst alcohol, Jesus says, no, let me give them some even better alcohol. Even though he wrote through the prophets a thousand years before, cursed is he that put his bottle to his neighbor's lips. But now you're telling me the son of God is going to do exactly that in the first miracle he works during his earthly ministry. Oh, these people are only a little bit drunk. They're only on their way. Here, let me give them even better wine. No chance. There's no chance that that is what the Son of God did, that he got people who were somewhere on the spectrum towards drunkenness and gave them even stronger drink from that point forward. When Jesus was in the upper room, when uh, the, the Lord's supper was being had and he likened his blood to the New Testament. When Jesus died on the cross, Acts says that that was God shedding his blood for his people, for his church. So you see where that symbolism is. You're saying that the very blood of God that Jesus shed and that represents the new, the new covenant, the New Testament, is represented by an alcoholic, a, a putrefied Beverage? I don't think so. I don't think so. I'll give you one last one. Proverbs 31, 6. You can turn to, turn to Mark, chapter 14. <clears throat> Proverbs 31, 6 says, Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Now, interestingly, those that are ready to perish, seems to me the Bible says something about God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth him should not perish. That's right. I'm playing a little bit with words, but it is interesting. Perish shows up about 130 times in the Bible, and it's pretty clear that it's not associated with God's people. God's people don't perish. It does talk about our outer man perishing and so forth. And I think that's what's talking about here in Proverbs as well. But we're not perishing. Lost people perish. Of course, our earthly body, we, we know if the Lord doesn't return, it's going to perish eventually. But the Bible does not predominantly speak of God's people as perishing. But it says, give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. Wine that be to those of heavy hearts. That you can kind of understand, right? Especially if it's a lost person. But how did the Lord respond in such a case? If you're in Mark chapter 14, 
Look at verse 34. This is Jesus in the, in the garden. He saith unto them, verse 34, Mark 14, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. What did it say? Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. Wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. You think Jesus has a heavy heart in the garden of Gethsemane? I'll say. I'll say. And if you just jump ahead one chapter to Mark 15, Mark 15. Now we're talking about Jesus on the cross. <clears throat> if, everybody, if ever someone was suffering in a place where Proverbs 31, 6 would apply, verse 23, this is Jesus on the cross, and they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, and he received it in accordance with Proverbs 31, 6. No. Here's the king. Here's the son of God, his soul exceeding sorrowful unto death, hanging on a cross, emaciated in body, dying for us. And the Bible says they, they give him some wine. Let's try to deaden the pain a little bit. He would have been within his rights to take it, but the example of our Savior is he wouldn't touch it. He wouldn't touch it. You know what? We're done. We, we don't have anywhere near time to look at all the verses, and I've already kept you kind of long tonight. But I hope we're making the point. Another fundamental principle in, in Bible study is that you don't interpret difficult or obscure passages, and I could give you several, in light of, the, or you do, in light of clear passages, not the other way around. You take the simple, straightforward truth of the Bible, which is what I've tried to give you in these last few moments, and when something seems difficult to understand or obscure, then you take it in light of what you know to be true. So, Brad, I just I need to drink to drown my sorrows. Well, can we introduce you to the comforter, the one who will bear your burdens and carry your sorrows? So I just need it to get me through the day or calm my nerves. How about we introduce you to the one that can give you joy and peace that the world can't provide? Liquid courage in the bottle, they call it. You need boldness. How about you be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might? closer you get to alcohol, the more woe, the more difficulty comes your way. God says, go the other direction. It's not helping anybody, but it's making plenty of people worse. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, tonight I pray that you would help us to think soberly upon these things. Lord, I love these people. Uh, not a single person comes to my mind in particular. I pray that no one in our midst, Lord, is wrestling with these things. But it's so pervasive. And if it's not in the lives of the people in this room tonight, it touches those lives somewhere. I pray you'd help us to be clear as your scriptures are clear. Pray that you'd help us to walk circumspectly and humbly with our God, to be good examples, to be good stewards, and to be a help to those around us. Lord, thank you for the kind attention of your people tonight. I pray your blessings upon them, that you close this service according to your will. In thy name we pray.